here before you this morning in this place without a tie. I didn't know you could preach without a tie. <laughs> I've been in the Presbyterian Church, and I think it's in the Westminster Confession somewhere that you have to have a tie when you preach. And um, so I don't know if I can do this or not. I'm, I'm not really sure how this is going to come out. You might want to, uh, you know, blame Pastor Rob if, if if it doesn't come out very. If you don't like this, then he's the one who invited me. So you know, you can go and talk to him about it. When I was at the Second Baptist Church in Tupelo, Mississippi, as a child, the uh, pastor <clears throat> would start out with the first a full reverend regalia. You know, he had the jacket on and the tie and everything. And in the course of the sermon, and which was like an airplane taking off, you know, a long <coughs> runway, as he was going through the sermon and picking up speed, that tie would come off after a while like the afterburners of a jet, you know, <laughs> shoot across the stage. And then as he, you know, really began to pick up speed, uh, that jacket would come off and he'd fling that thing down like he had just broken the sound barrier. And then, you know, as he's rolling up his sleeves and his landing gear is beginning to come out, you can tell that he's calming down and beginning to look for a place to land. And sometimes it was on smooth tarmac. And sometimes it was nose down in a duck pond in the middle of the pasture somewhere. So who knows how this is going to come out. We'll see. No tie. Totally, I don't know what I'm doing. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, while I find the glasses that actually work. Turn to it, click on it, uh, scroll to it. Isn't it weird that we scroll these days? That's why they made the book in the first place, was so you wouldn't have to scroll anymore. Is technology going forward or backwards or what? We'll see. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And let's pray and ask God's blessing upon uh, his word. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do come to you totally dependent upon you to teach us. We know nothing. We can know nothing. We can hear nothing unless your spirit opens our ears, unless our ears are hearing the things that you would have for us to know. Plow the ground of our, uh, of our hearts. Cultivate that ground. And cause it to be prepared to receive the seed. Uh, and cause that to grow, O oh Lord, into fruitful trees in order that we might be a benefit to one another. We lift all these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew 15, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And we're going to concentrate on that last verse mostly. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And actually, um, Tony Ingram, in his prayer, just preached this sermon, so we can go home <laughs> if you want to. You know, We can beat the Methodist to the uh, restaurant. What is a good work? <clears throat> we know when we think of good works, uh, a lot of times we think of acts of charity, right? Helping the helpless, that's, that's big. Um, giving money uh, to charity, volunteering your time, founding a charitable organization, in some way or another doing things to help people who don't have food, to get food to them, people who don't have drink to get water to them. Uh, people who are in prison to get to them and visit them and to bring the gospel to them. Uh, these are all good works, and there are many others that we could name that are good works. They're beneficial works. In your own personal life, prayer, that's a good work. Can't deny that. Bible study, isn't that a good work? Going to church, worshiping God, those are good works. But I have two questions for you. Is it possible for these to be not good works? Is it possible for them to be not good works? Well, as far as giving money, volunteering your time to do charitable work and things of that sort, it is a good work if it does good for people and they benefit by those things that you do. There's no getting around that. It's good. The question is, is it good for you? Now, it's good for them. It's profitable for them. But you know, God can use even a wicked sinner to give money, to volunteer time, and all of those actions of the body. Anybody can do it. The good work may be beneficial to the person you're doing it to. But is it necessarily credited to you? And you might say, well, does that really matter? Well, it mattered to Paul. Paul wanted credit, not from men. He wanted that credit from God. And so, and he wanted it, and so should you. And you know you do. You know, it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, we have this false modesty, this false, you know, oh, I don't want anything. Uh, all I want is a is a, uh, a little log cabin in, a glory, in the corner of glory land so, so, somewhere. Don't give me much. I'm, I'm okay. With... But God wants to lavish his grace upon you. And you don't want it? Of course you do. If you're a born-again believer, you want credit. You want a crown. You want to have something to show when you go into his presence, something to cast at his feet. You want that. You must want it, and you must pursue it as well. And that's why we are required to do good works. The next question is, uh, what about all the other work that people do? Are those good works too? Like plowing, raising children, plumbing, teaching, doing chores, being a student, supervising a factory? Running a machine, writing software, sounding the mysterious depths of actuary science, being an accountant, 
soldiering, soldering. The only reason why I put those in there is because I had a typo. <laughs> Make, making donuts, running a cash, a cash register, slinging burgers, soccer momming, fishing, selling vacuum cleaners, firefighting, piloting aircraft, branding doggies, inventing stuff, sanitation engineering, rocket science, shoe repair, grocery shopping, cleaning septic tanks, and 10,000 other occupations that keep civilization running. Are those good works too? And many, many, many more? Can those things be good works in the biblical sense of the word? And how do we know what a good work is? We can either know it from ourselves and, I, and don't trust that. You know, are my works good? Well, sure they are. I'm me. Therefore, they're good. Okay? That's going to be our answer. It's going to be our tendency to answer. We're going to put ourselves on the biggest curve you ever saw in the universe. What about others? Others who are around us. Well, we, we, we do, you know, usually we don't want to uh, offend people. So if somebody says, well, was that a good work that I did? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a good work. Yeah, that church certainly was a good work. So what makes a good work a good work? Is it because I have a feeling about it? Is, I, is it because I'm sentimental towards it? Do all of those things have to do with whether it's a good work or does God say in his word what a good work is? That's what I want to know. Because that's the only way I'm going to have any certainty that what I'm doing is good. And I'm not going to be, <clears throat> I'm not going to be morbidly introspective when I do my work, you know, like the person that I heard one time who said after um, uh, somebody's house had burned down that they knew in the church, not here, this was a long time ago and somewhere else, and uh, somebody gave things to that and then started saying, well, I think I only gave those things away just because, um, you know, I wanted everybody to think I was a good person. And probably the only reason why I'm confessing this to you right now is that I'm trying to manipulate you into thinking that I'm righteous and humble. And uh, I think that all of my prayers about this whole thing were just trying to manipulate God and get God. So I shouldn't have just done it in the first place. And we can get down in that loop, you know, and take that down. And, or we can just think anything we do is good just because I'm me. So how can we know? And how important is it? It's very important because I want to know when I do good works that God is pleased with that work. So let's see what the Word of God says about that. First of all, what is the essence of good works? Look at the text in, in, in our verse 16. Let your light, and notice that before we end this, we're going to see that God the Father may be glorified. What do you think about when you think about glory? Shining. Glory, shining. I always think about, uh, I, I always think of the word glory. After a big thunderstorm has taken place and the sun begins to break through the clouds in shafts of light going anywhere, it's glorious, it's heavenly. And so we think about God shining in glory. Now, he doesn't shine with physical light. How does he shine? What, is, what does light do? You know, does, does, does light, um, you know, in, in, in 
and we can define light biblically, whereas scientists are still arguing with each other over just exactly what light is. Won't go into that, you know. It has to do with photons and waves and all of this kind of stuff. But you know, one of the interesting things about the scientists that they don't understand is how it is that light goes at the speed of light no more and no less and that if it goes, that it can't go more, and that if it goes less, it ceases to be light. So which came first, the speed of light or light? And, and there's such a codependency between the speed of light and light that it's hard to separate the two from one another. They seem to define each other. So what is light? Well, my definition is, is that light is what light bulbs do. And what candles do when they're lit. That's what light is. Light manifests things. It penetrates darkness. It shows, it, you know, things become plain. They become visible. They become seen in light. And what is God's glory? What is that which is visible about God in, to us in this world? In Romans 1 says... It's his works. It's his works. Creation, all of creation, is the manifestation of God's, of God's glory. It's his works. If you look at um, Genesis chapter 1 and how it is that God went about creating the world, the thing that you're going to see about that that's very interesting is that he does it uh, in stages of labor in order that we may see that and do it like he does. He's the great exemplar of what a good work is. And if he isn't, why is it that, that day after day of creation, he says, well, that was good. And then he says, that was good. And then he says, that was good. And finally, when it's all done, he says, it's very good. Very good. Finished good. And then he sits down and rejoices in his creation. And that is the pattern of good works that is given to us from the very beginning. We'll talk about how that transmits to man uh, from the creation act after a little bit. So good works is what Christians do. Good, good works is what Christians do. If you're a born-again believer, you're doing good works. That doesn't mean everything you're doing is good. But whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So you must be believing in God. You must be abiding in God for your works to be good. Good works is what Christians do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Two things about that. Number one, you were not saved like Jasmine open, opening up uh, the birdcage and letting the birdies go free. That's not salvation, right? God came along and opened my little cage and said, you've got a second chance, go fly away, do your thing. That's not salvation. You are saved unto something because you belong to him. Whereas you were in slavery to Satan in the world before you are now the servant of God. You belong to him. 
And so you were made for a purpose. You were made for a purpose. And you young people, you are in the process right now of trying to find out what that purpose is. And you need a lot of help and you need a lot of counsel. So listen to counsel. Listen to advice from older people who are further down the line than you are because you need to know these things. You need to know what your calling is. You need to know what your gifts are. Because one of the most important things about good works is our duty. We are to bear fruit. You know, do apple trees sit around thinking about, you know, I think I'm going to make some apples today. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll make some oranges today. You know? Maybe we'll just change things around a little bit. Trees don't think about making fruit. They just make fruit. And they make that fruit because it is the nature of them to do so. It comes out of their sap and, come, and turns into fruit. That's what the Christian is. It defines life. It very much defines life. We bear fruit. And that fruit is manifest in good works. How is God glorified? How, how does God show forth His glory? In what He does, in what we can see. If we can't see it, it's not glory to us. And now look what he says here in verse 16. Let your light so shine. And that so is not like so shine. It is in such a manner, let it shine. And actually, it's at the very beginning of the verse, which makes it emphatic. In such a manner, let your light shine. And then he uses another adverb that says practically the same thing right after that. In such a manner, let men see your good works. So these two phrases are very closely tied to each other. In fact, they're inextricably tied to one another. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to shine? What does it mean to do good works? Well, if we can answer one of those, we've answered all three of them at the same time. Pretty good, huh? Three sermons in one. That's what you're going to get today, which means we're going to probably, you know, go until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Try not to. We are to bear fruit. We have good works sap running through our twigs. So that's the first thing that you need to know. This is what we do. Now, sometimes we don't. Sin is not a good work. So it, when you sin as a Christian, that's not a good work. And sometimes we do things, charitable things, going to church, reading our Bible, and it's not a good work. And we'll see why in a minute. And then sometimes it is. And now maybe you know, you know, I'd like to know what good works are because I want to make sure that my action is a good work every time. I want to make sure my action is a good work every time. I want to bring a ton of crowns into the kingdom. I want to lay up a lot of treasures in heaven. So we need to know this. Fruit is the proof of life. It always is. All the way go, goes all the way back to creation. 
a tree must bear fruit and there must be seed in the fruit in order for it to continue into the next generations of trees. It is a sign, it is a, uh, a figurative metaphor throughout the scriptures for good works, for the good works that God's people do. The bearing of fruit. Remember in Matthew 20, uh, 13, the parable of the sower. When some of that seed fell on good ground, it yielded a crop. Some 100, some 60, some 30. Jesus explains it. He says, he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands the word. That's faith. Hearing the word, being able to hear the word in the first place, which only a believer can do. And understanding it, understanding what it is that God is conveying to him in that word, who, in, who indeed bears fruit and produces. Bears fruit and produces. And I like it that he says, who indeed, indeed, in the old sense of the word, in his works, and yea, verily, he bears fruit. And produces some 100, some 60, some 30. So the essence of good works is that they are what we naturally do because we are Christians. So why do we need to know what they are if we naturally do it? Because you don't always naturally do it. You hit and miss until you know what a good work is. And then you start hitting it every time. Okay? Let's talk about the players in good works. It's easy. There's man, and then there's God. Okay, let's go on to the next point. Now, remember that, that the men read from Ecclesiastes 1 a while ago, and it, and it, it sounds really depressing as I'll get out. Uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is vexation of, of spirit. You know, I mean, it's even worse. It's vexation of spirit, but it's all vain. What's vain? Was vanity, emptiness, nothingness, meaninglessness, purposelessness, valuelessness. Man is the empty one. He's the, he's the empty player in the, in the game of good works. He is the empty one. That's the way it begins. It begins as man, the empty one. Think about creation for a minute. What did God need to create the universe? Nothing. And he had plenty, plenty of it. That was nothingness all over the place. And that's all he needed to create the universe. And so out of nothing, he created the universe by the word of his mouth. And all very good. All very good. There's a good work for you right there. And it's the pattern of good works. But what do we play in it? We're empty. We're empty. There's nothing that we can do that God needs. Not a thing. Not a thing that we can do that God needs. So what do we do? We come to him empty. 
And that's the way we are. We're, we, our work is vanity, is striving after wind. So we're fully qualified to be used of God unto good works. Fully qualified. Why? Because we're absolutely helpless, have absolutely nothing to contribute, and everything we do is vain. What we need is the Holy Spirit. You th if you think about what Old Testament or Old Covenant uh, church accomplished, uh, which is called Jerusalem. I mean, it, it develops in the Old Testament that, uh, that the church of the Old Testament is called Jerusalem. And what did, what did it accomplish in the Old Testament? Not much. Not much of anything. Most of the time it was apostatizing. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the Old Testament prophets come down on... Uh, the Old Testament church, Jerusalem, Judah, uh, just blasting it with all kinds of indictments. God is whipping it. We see opening up the, the book of Isaiah. He can't even find a place to lay the whip anymore. There's so many sores. It's a, it's a picture of defeat. It's a picture of failure. And why? It is because they had no Holy Spirit. Now, the individual people had the Holy Spirit, but the church itself did not have the Holy Spirit. He was not binding the church together. He was not empowering the church. And then Pentecost takes place, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down into Jerusalem and then goes to the real Jerusalem, which is those people in the upper room, and he empowers them in the upper, in, in the upper room and binds their hearts together. And immediately, what do you see in the book of Acts? A burst of activity. Suddenly, the church is growing. It's multiplying. The good works are going forth from it. Their charity towards one another is named. And it's very profound because the Holy Spirit has come. What has happened with the church since then? And the church has had all kinds of problems throughout the ages. But... There is the flag of the gospel of Jesus Christ in every nation on this planet right now. You might say, things are not going so well in our country. Well, that's because the West is in decline. But the world is doing pretty well, spiritually. There have never been so many Christians on this planet as there are right now. There are literally over a billion Christians in this, on this planet. Never been a billion Christians. You look throughout the entire Old Testament, what do you see? Tiny little dot representing those who believe in Him. A tiny little dot getting dimmer and dimmer all the time, and everything else is black darkness. Well, how do you see it now? Well, it's kind of like those uh, NASA photographs of, of the Earth at night. Spots of light all over the place. All over the place. The work of missions that have been going on for hundreds of years now. You know, um, just as an example. And I want to let you know that in order to do a good work, you have to have the Holy Spirit working in you to do a good work. And when He is working in you to do a good work, it will be powerful. Very, very powerful 
He has great strength and He will lend that strength to you in all that you do. And it will be marvelous to be seen and glorious before the Lord. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit. The church has to depend upon the Holy Spirit. It has to be bound together by Him. Without the Holy Spirit, the church will come apart. I don't care how much conflict resolution uh, seminars you go through. They'll just make people argue even more and do it with even more sophistication. What we need is the Holy Spirit to bind us together. Compatibility in the church is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Therefore, it is a work of God. And it is a miracle. It is a miracle. And here's the thing. That when this union takes place within the church, then what comes together is the filament of the light bulb. The lights come on and the world sees. And they glorify the Father who is in heaven. Which means that they know that they have seen an act of God when His church is bound together in love and in good works. So you need man, the empty one. And then you need God, who is the good one. <clears throat> We're talking about good works, right? So therefore, God has to be the good one. Jesus said this, he said, uh, and you children below the age of 12, you're the ones I want you to fill in this blank, okay? So listen real carefully. There is none, there is no one good but God, okay? See, the children know that, and then we have to unlearn it later and learn something else. God and me <laughs> and my friends and whatever. Because what we do is we lower what goodness is as it goes along. Jesus here is elevating to it to its highest height. He's not saying I'm not good. You know, to the man who said it, good master, why'd you call me good? Are you saying that I'm God? Because if so, you're correct. But there's nobody good but God. So you have the empty one who is man. And then you have the good one who is God. And what do we have here? A perfect combination. One ready to receive his goodness. The other one who is all good. And when they come together. When they come together. When they abide with one another. When they come in union with one another. Through his grace. And through the blood of Jesus, when they come together as one, God and man, that's when good works begin. And that is the definition of good works. It is the very definition of good works. 
So you need man, the empty shell, God, the good, to make a good work insofar as man reflects the very image of God in all that he does. God can do good works on his own without man. He doesn't need man. This is a pure act of grace on his part. Join me. Join me. And see wonderful things take place. Now, as Tony said, there's more to the book of Ecclesiastes than what you heard read today. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Remember how God reposes at the end of, of uh, creation? This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to, to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. You see, with God, it all has meaning. It ceases to be vain. It ceases to be unprofitable. And it becomes profitable. It becomes, it becomes full, fulfilled work. Let's talk about the mode of good works. Gen and, and turn with me or click or scroll or whatever to Genesis 2, 4 through 7. You know, some people say that there are two um, accounts of creation, and that's not true. Uh, there are not because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Um, the first chapter and into chapter 3, verse, uh, or, or chapter 2, verse 3, uh, ends the first portion of it, but the second portion beginning in Genesis 2-4 backs up and scopes into the sixth day of creation. And he says, This is the generation of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and heaven before any plant, and the word for plant there is siach, which is a bush or a small plant uh, of the field, and we're going to see that these plants that he names here are in cultivated fields. So bear in mind, what he's talking about here is farming. He's talking about agriculture here. So he says, before any plant of the field, and the word for field, sadeh, means a cultivated field, almost every time it's used throughout the Old Testament, was in the uh, was in the earth it, it um, uh, before any plant of the field. I keep interrupting myself. That's the problem here. Before any plant uh, of the field was in the earth, and before any herb, eseb, which is edible plants of the field, had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. So we're talking about 
agriculture here. God basically on the sixth day is, is saying this. He set a dilemma up for us to study. God does that in the, in the Old Testament many times. Actually, we're going to see that Jesus does it in the New Testament too. But he'll present a dilemma. How can I solve this problem? And what is the problem? The problem is it's not raining. That's the problem. It's not raining. And there's a provisional mist that comes up to, to, to water the face of the ground. But what God is saying here is, how can I get it to rain? Because, and, and get this, how can I get it to rain? How can I get it to shower rains when there is no one to till the ground? That's the problem. How can I get it to rain when there's no one to till the ground? And what is God saying here? Is he talking about his inability to do something? Or is he talking about his purpose here? His purpose is showers come when men plow. Showers come when men plow. And here he has set up for us what a good work is. Man does the activity. Man does the duty. God sends the shower. In other words, God sends the blessing upon the work. Who was it that said it's good every time in his work of creation? God, it's good. It's good. Who always says it's good? Who always blesses? Does man bless himself? Can God, man say of himself that he's good? That the things that he does is good? No, all he can say is, I am an unprofitable servant. I have only done what was my duty to do. And Jesus lays this out before his disciples. He says to them, you say, after you have done everything, you say, I am an unprofitable servant. I have only done what was my duty. You know, we don't start out in this world at zero and start working our way up the, the righteousness scale. We start out in life at negative 1,743,000,000,000, whatever. Way, way down. And we never can work our way up to zero in our entire life. So every good thing you might do, if it brought you up any, it just brings you up from the depth of a pit of debt. And you never get to zero. That's why there's no scale in heaven to measure your good and your bad. That's not how God measures things. Because you would lose every time. You must have Jesus. You must have Him. So what we need in order to do good works is we need duty and calling. That's what we need first. We need a duty and a calling. And God makes everyone for a purpose. And it's up to you with the help of Christian counsel, starting with your mother and your father and going to other people within the church to find out how God has placed you in this world 
by how he has made you. You know, God says uh, in, in Ecclesiastes 9.10, he says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or, serve or, or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. If it's not in the grave, where is it? It's in your work. It's in your duty. We'll get to that in a minute. It's in your duty and in your calling. Work hard, work skillfully, work knowledgeably, do a good job. So man provides the physical labor. And then God's blessing. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season. Showers of blessing, he says in Ezekiel. Showers of blessing. You know, in Haggai, who was a post-exile prophet in chapter 2, I think it is, <clears throat> Uh, God, through the prophet, lays a problem out for the priests. He basically says to them, uh, you know, uh, can a man defile himself with the meat of the sacrifice or uh, does it defile this or that? And the bottom line is what it gets down to is this. What is the one thing that man can do in this world? And the answer is defile everything he touches. And so God is pointing at this new temple that they have just built after the Babylonian captivity. He's pointing at this temple and basically it looks like a cracker box because all the old men are crying their eyes out looking at it, remembering what Solomon's temple looked like. And God looks at that temple and he says, it's nothing but a box. That's all. But when I come in, when I come in, then your crops are going to yield and the, the rains are going to come in their season and everything you do will prosper when I come in. When I come in. And this is, the, this is what good works is. Man, the empty one, and God, blessing. And what do we need to link ourselves there? Faith. Faith. Faith is the link. Is faith essential to good works? Well, the Bible says whatever is not from such faith is sin. So, yeah. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For we know that, that by faith we know that He is, first of all, that He exists, and not just that He exists, but He Himself exists. The one who exists, exists. You know, when you're born again and your eyes are open for the first time, your spiritual eyes are open for the first time, you're gazing into the face of God and saying, I know you. I know you. I know who you are. That's faith. For the first time. And from that time on, you will always know Him. And you'll always know who is not Him. And you may get a little confused from time to time, but He'll always be there to straighten you out and say, remember, you know me. You know me. You never knew any of those false gods. You never knew any of those non-gods. You've only known me. You've only known me. And that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. How do we trust God in our work? And what are we talking about? 
Remember, I'm talking about the job you guys have. I'm talking about the homes you ladies are keeping. I'm talking about the chores you young people have been given to do. And by the way, always do it thoroughly and without complaint and joyfully. Make up your beds. Jesus made up his bed. I know Mary must have been really proud when Peter and John reported back after they had been to the tomb. His garments were folded and put in a place. And she's, he always made up his bed. He always did. So you see, you're in good company. Make up your bed. In everything that you do, do in faith. Trust in God. Trust in God in your work. Now let me, uh, let me do a quick disclaimer here. If you're a mob boss or a pimp, <laughs> this message does not apply to you and your job. What you need to do is be saved, repent, and quit that job. Okay? You may even need to spend a little time in prison. But there is no such thing as a Christian pimp, okay? So there are inappropriate jobs, and you don't want to be in those. But once you know what your calling is, and once you know what it is that God has made you for, he will equip you for that, everything that he has in mind for you to do for the rest of your life. No ifs, ands, or buts. It may come at the last minute, but that's just him trying your faith. Trust in God in the secret things. Trust in Him in the secret things. Ecclesiastes 11, 5-6 says, As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, these are the secret things that God does. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. Which is another way of saying throw a lot of seed over the field. Okay? Don't hold it back. I think I'll do this one and this one because some of them may not come up. How do you know the ones you're throwing are the ones that aren't going to come up? That's what he's saying. Throw a bunch of them out there. And then you can weed them out later. For you do not know which seed will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. But God does. He knows. He knows the secret things. You leave those things to Him. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that have been revealed belong to you and your children. But the secret things belong to him. Leave them there. We're always trying to figure out the secret things. That's the thing that edges us all the time. And those are the places where you go, I just simply trust, Lord, that you've got this. You've got this. There's nothing I can do here. There's nothing I can do in the mysterious area that I just don't understand and have no way of understanding. Therefore, you're doing that, and I'm not. And so I do my job. I keep my mind on my duty. I keep my mind on the thing that is before me, the thing that God has handed to me. That is the most important thing for me to be doing, is to be looking after that. Trust God to teach you in your profession. You may say, hey, I went to college, and I got a degree in this thing, and in my specific company, I'm actually the one who invented this department in the first place. There is nothing 
that I don't know about my profession. Well, you won't know that until you take it to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me. Teach me my profession. David was a martial artist. He killed 10,000 peoples. You know, songs were sung about him. And yet he said, he teaches my hands to do war. He teaches, he doesn't say he taught it. He says, he teaches my hands to do war and to draw a bow of brass, which, by the way, is no small feat. David was dependent upon the Lord to help him to do the thing he did. The thing he did. Now, I want you to think for a minute. What is the thing that is before me? What is the thing that I do? Is it that you are a student in college? Is it that you are a student at home being homeschooled? Is it that you're a, uh, a, a soccer mom? Is it that you're uh, multitasking your, your children from here to, to there and trying to keep house and all of these kinds of things? Is it that you are uh, a man or a woman who is in a professional place doing professional things? Uh, and what is your profession? You're selling software, are you plumbing, are you driving a truck, uh, or some kind of, or, or, or uh, doing some kind of, of, of machine work, or, or are you a lawyer, or this, or that, or this, or that, or this, or that. Just think about it. The thing I do. Do you ask God to help you do that job? And I don't mean by help you to make you kind of feel better about it or get a little bit of a charge or something like that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, do you ever come before him and say, show me what to do. Teach me how to do this better. You know this job better than I do. You are my boss of bosses. You show me how to do this. You show me how to make this bed better. You show me how to do these dishes better. You show me how to organize my house better. You show me how to teach these children better. You teach me, Lord. You teach me to do my job. I was for a long time a printer. I became a uh, journeyman, which that's pretty good, you know. I could brag about it. But... I remember at one point going into a new company and first committing to the Lord the first day before I went into the in, in there. I always came in early in the morning. And before I went in, committing to the Lord, Lord, you are my boss. You are my boss. This is yours, and I'm working for you. No matter what else, I'm working for you. Went in and tried, you know, I mean, I tried to practice day by day committing my job to the Lord. Committing it to the Lord every day. I remember at one time uh, we had a, um, a product that was being done in Germany by one of our uh, other companies that was overseas. And the product that was being done uh, couldn't be done in Germany anymore, so they sent it to our shop. And when they sent it to our shop, they handed it to me and said, uh, I want you to see if you can die cut this thing, you know. And uh, the first thing I looked at, because the stuff was made out of vinyl and it stuck together with, uh, with uh, uh, electricity, uh, static electricity, like a brick. I mean, you know, trying to feed this thing through the press was going to be a real challenge. 
And my first at looking at it was this, this press I have, my skills, it's impossible. This is a, you, you can't do that. It's got to be roll-fed, whatever. But we didn't have the, the ability to do that, and so it had to be sheep-fed. And I could have left it just, at, just like that. I said, no, can't do it. But I asked the Lord, is there any way that I can do this? Is there any way that I can make this work with that press, with my skills, and with this problem we have here, which looks to me like it's absolutely impossible? Having prayed about it, I began to work it. It took me five days to do the first setup, to do the first what was called make ready. It took me five days because I had so many problems to work out. I had to, I had to uh, bleed out electricity from, uh, from those stacks of paper as they were going into there. I had to, to, you know, it looked like a Christmas tree when the thing was over with all kinds of metal things going all over, you know, to try to disperse all of the static electricity and so forth. And there were certain uh, techniques that you had to do. You had to keep fanning it and keep fanning it over and over again through the whole process. But after five days, I was running. I was running the product and running it faster than they did in Germany in five days. If I hadn't believed in God who works with his people, I would have just said, forget it. This is stupid. It's dumb to do this. This machine was designed in 1890. It wasn't meant to deal with this kind of material. There wasn't even any of this material around when this machine was first invented. So forget it. You're asking too much. The Lord helped me to do that. Now that's just one example. I could show you quite a few others of, of things like that. And you could too. You could too. You know of, you know of situations where you were in a pickle and then you went to the Lord, and He showed you the way. Or He opened the way for you. That what was a problem that should have gone on forever, all of a sudden, it's gone. That problem's gone. And I'm through. And I'm on the other side. Because the Lord is with me. Now, He's going to deal with you in different ways and different circumstances. But you always want Him with you in whatever it is that you're going through and whatever it is that you're trying to overcome overcome so faith trusts that he knows my profession better than I do and he can teach me to, to my hands to do war <laughs> you know in Isaiah it says um, Isaiah 28 give ear and hear my voice God's talking here listen and hear my speech does the plowman keep plowing all day to, day to sow does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods does he, does he just love plowing and seeing dirt turn over? Is that what the plowman does? Or does he stop and, and do something somewhere down the line? Is that all he's doing? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? 
In other words, after plowing, what's needed to be plowed, he sows and and the seed, uh, and he does the seeds in proper order, in order that they may benefit one another in their growth. You think that's a modern idea? No, that's an ancient idea. He uses knowledge. For he, God, instructs him, the farmer, in right judgment. His God teaches him, and, and when the crop comes in, then the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever. Break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horseman. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. What's he saying here? You farmers don't know anything I haven't taught you about every detail of what you do. If this is true of farmers, it's true of plumbers. It's true of of, uh, people who write software programs. It's, It's true of anybody, of anything, of any profession that is an honorable profession before the Lord. You know, we have a tendency to look at our work uh, of going to church and doing charity and things of that sort. We have a tendency to look at those things as being sacred work. And then we have a tendency to look at our jobs that we go to as secular work. Why? 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 The Puritans did not build the foundation of the nation with that view in mind. Their work was sacred. Why? Because God was in it. And where he was was power. Power and knowledge to do those things that he did. The secret things belong to the Lord. And God teaches you your profession. Also, there's a prize in every labor. Proverbs 17, 24 says, Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding. But the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. What's he saying? The fool is looking all over the place. It's bad all over. It's good all over. It's whatever all over, but it's all out there. And what is the wise person doing? The righteous, the wise person. He is looking at the thing that God has given him to do. He has his whole attention into that. That is his joy in life. And out of this is where God says his wisdom is going to come. You don't like the job that you're in right now. You don't like the fact that you're living at home and having to do chores and homework and stuff like that. I got to tell you something. There's no wisdom outside of the, that duty. If your parents say to you, you got to take the garbage out, there's wisdom in taking the garbage out. That sounds funny, but it isn't. The wisdom is in the thing he has given you to do, not in things that are all out there, all over the place. It's not there, it isn't there. The wisdom he has for you, the knowledge, the understanding he has for you is in the place where he has put you, which is why you don't want to move from that place until he sends you somewhere else. Until he clearly sends you somewhere else. Because there is where you're going to learn. There is where he is going to meet you. There is where his sanctified work takes place. I lost a job one time because I was proud 
I didn't like the way they treated me. And I let them know in no uncertain terms that I don't like the way you're treating me. And they let me know in no certain uncertain terms that I could hit the road. And so I did, and it took quite a while to uh, recover what I had lost from that. And in the next job that I had, I worked for them and I was very loyal to them through a recession in that particular industry. Terrible recession was going on and I was there with them all the way through. And the competition was offering me a job. Hey, we'll pay you so much more than that. No, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be loyal to the company. And, um, and I went through it. And when it was over with, I went to them and said, well, look, I understand why y'all didn't give me a raise during that period of time because we were pretty badly stressed, but the stress is over now, and now it's time for that raise. And they said, no. And I said, well, I'll just have to find myself another job then. And uh, so I did. I went off and found another job. And um, then I lost that job because um, the recession was still going on and they were having to cut... Uh, personnel and I was the bottom of the scale hadn't been there very long so they let me go and so I was trying to find a job after that and I finally found one it was back at the other company <laughs> right back there where I had egg in the face in the first place and so I spent the next year and a half there at that company and and the boss there he was like, I am going to really put it to him. And he did. He did. And he put me on the crummiest machine you ever saw in your life. And uh, I was in the corner and wasn't worth anything for a long period. And I had to develop an idea about that because I had seen I was not a very humble person. And I was being worn down. To humility and it was in my jobs it was in my jobs and so um, I decided this is what the Lord has given me you know this humiliating job this is what the Lord has given me and I'm going to take it and do what I can with it and I put everything I had into it and after a while you know the Lord blessed my work and the, these crummy machines that I was running here, I had done adjustments over my, in a period of time, and they were running like tap hammer. I mean, just nice machines. Yeah. Running better than the good ones were running. Because the Lord was blessing my work. And I was beginning to enjoy that. And just getting to the place where it's like, man, I, I, I like working here. I like working in this place right here. What was I learning? Humility. I needed that. I needed that so badly. Without it, you can't keep a job. But with it, you can actually become content in the job that you're in. One day, one of their big fancy presses broke down. They couldn't afford to bring in a, 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 uh, an engineer, so they asked me. Uh, they said, can you fix this press? And I said, yeah. <laughs> So they said, okay, get to it. I had to tear the press all the way down to nothing. But I fixed it. And when I got done with it, it was running real nicely and everything. And they moved me out of there back into the streamlined department that I had been in before 
And right about that time, the Lord gave me another job, which was even better. So it all worked out. And why am I telling you this? Because the wisdom of God is in your job. It's there. That's where you find him. You find him in that work right there. And when you find him in that work and you believe and trust in him and trust in his and trust in the action that he brings to bear upon your job, then it's a good work. It's a good work. And it's accredited to you for righteousness. It is accredited to you. Not the righteousness to unto justification, but to a righteousness of application that becomes your own, so to speak. In, in, in the Lord, of course. And then finally, when you do for others, when you do for God, for Jesus' brothers in faith, you do it unto Him. Jesus says to us, yeah, whatever you do, it's just your duty to do it. And you're not a profitable servant. Now, that doesn't sound like a great motivation speaker uh, you know, that we're dealing with here. But what Jesus is doing is he's telling us, you are essential to good works as being unprofitable. In other words, you have nothing of yourself to add but just the thing that you were supposed to do in the first place. That is what you contribute. The thing you were supposed to do. And then God comes into it. Because you're trusting Him in faith to do so. To teach it to you. To handle the secret things that you don't understand. And then Jesus comes into it. And it becomes a good work. Because together with Him, bound together with Him, you do good works. Now we trust with this same kind of trust that when somebody among our brethren is hungry, then we feed them and having fed them, we feed Jesus. And we give them drink and we give Jesus drink. Now, does Jesus need our drink? No. Does Jesus need our food? No. Does Jesus need anything from us whatsoever? No. Absolutely nothing. So he says to us, you're not profitable to me, but you're profitable to them. Paul talks about this. He talks about being profitable to others over and over again in the epistles. We're not profitable to God. But we're profitable to each other. And so we use each other, so to speak. I'm sorry. But we use each other to love through to God. To love through to God. And in loving through to God, since He is the origin of our love in the first place, to love that person. But notice, it's not just you and me. All right? You and you. It's you and me and God. Through God. God through us. You know, I like the way uh, in the upper room discourse, Jesus is saying, uh, you know, I and my Father are one. Him and me. Me and Him. 
You and me. Me and you. You and him. Him and you. Us and you. Y'all in him. All tangled up together. My dad used to say, you and me are going to tangle up. He used to tell, tell, tell me that if I was if it, doing something wrong. You better stop that or you and me is going to tangle up. Well, I didn't know what tangling up meant with my dad, but I knew that if there was anything to tangling up, that he was the one person I did not want to tangle up with. It's an inextricable thing, right? And this is, this is the picture here. The picture of our being so, so bound up with him. And not just with him, folks. You know, almost all of the yous in the Bible, almost all of the second person uh, pronouns in the Bible are plural. Plural. Remember that. Almost all of them. God is constantly speaking to us, all of us, not just me, all of us. And this binding together to unto good works, He does not just with me, but with all of us together. And the world will not stand up to that kind of power. The gates of hell will not prevail against that kind of power. God and His people. People. Bound together. That means we have to be bound together with one another. All bound together in Him. What makes works necessary? First of all, it's commanded. It's commanded. And that should be good enough. We could have ended the sermon a long time ago. I'm sure you wish we had. It is why we are saved. It is why we are saved. And finally, in judgment, God is going to judge our works. Now, not unto salvation. Make sure you understand that. But He is going to judge our works. Look at Romans 2, 5 through 11. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, he's talking to the judgmental um, Jews here, <clears throat> Jewish leaders. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Just... Meditate on that for a good long while. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. The glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. It's absolutely necessary that we do good works. Remember in Matthew 23 when Jesus looked for a fruit in the fig tree and it gave no fruit, only leaves. He cursed it and it withered, and, uh, it withered away. Probably makes more sense now, doesn't it? Then he went into the temple and he engaged the hypocrites looking for the weightier fruit of love and justice among the leaves and the seeds of, of the herbs that they tithed. And he ends the chapter saying, How will you avoid 
the fires of hell. Because always, always, always in the scriptures and in judgment, if there's no fruit, there's no life. If there's no fruit, it means death. It means death. And so we prove our life by good works. Let's go quickly back to the um, text, and I'll end here. I promise I'll end here. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, you bound together with God in your good works, you trusting completely in His Spirit, you knowing that you are nothing and that you are unprofitable, you knowing that you must have Him and that you must be in union with Him or nothing that you do has any meaning, any purpose, any value if you put any meaning, purpose, and value in yourself as yourself. You must move that away. You must get rid of it. You must stop that. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 2, the last, the, the last verse, Cease ye from man. Cease from man. That includes yourself. Cease from man. For what is he to be accounted of? What is he? That's why we have to have God and the life of God running through our bodies, running through our, our minds, our hearts, our spirits, and our work. Our work. Because the work that we do is the first visible representation to the world out there. The waiting world in darkness out there. It is the first representation to them of the glory of the Father. So what does that make you? Well, that makes you the rays of His glory. The rays of His glory. That's what we are. We are radiating from Him. And just as all men can see the evidence of God in creation and so are without excuse, Romans 1, so also, so also, we give evidence to His glory in that our work is good works. Good works. I don't know that we have really plumbed the depth of what that means altogether. That in doing our good works before the world, some gate begins to open up in their hearts to the gospel. But I think that... General William Booth came pretty close. When he was establishing the Salvation Army back in the 1880s and 1890s, he went through several stages in, uh, in that ministry. The first stage was in just trying to preach the gospel to the people of the, the homeless and poor people of, of, um, of uh, London. And he didn't get anywhere. No converts, no lasting converts. So 
He saw that they were hungry and he began to feed them. And he made a little headway. But he also found that it was far worse than that. These people were completely without hope. They were totally without hope. And he saw that he was going to have to instill hope in them before they were going to really hear the gospel. And so he uh, built the plantations that he would take them to and teach them all over again to do skills and, and then slowly move them into the job force into England. And when, those, and, and when hope had been filled in them, then they opened up to the gospel. And, and many, many people, many people were converted at this time. There was a veritable revival in London in the 1890s during this period of time. And a lot of it was due to his work. Because he understood they need to work. They need to work. Because in that work is where they're going to find their hope. We need to work. We need to work. And our works need to be good works. Jesus brought forth the dilemma. Likewise, you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty. Job asked the question, can a man be profitable to God, though he, he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Paul to Titus says, this is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. God doesn't say anything about uh, say anything that that we have because uh, everything that we that we have comes from Him in the first place. The answer to the dilemma, Philippians two fourteen through sixteen, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That brings us back to our text. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So we open up with Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity and vexation of scripture. Uh, 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 vexation, vexation of spirit. And now we end, having come in union with God, by faith in Him, in all that we do in our life. And we find the answer to the dilemma. How can I cease to be an unprofitable servant? How can I cease to be a vain and meaningless person? And that is to abide in Him and have Him join us in our work by faith. I hope this will help you. I hope now that you'll be able to look at the thing you do in a different way. I hope so. I, think you, I hope that you find the blessing in that that the Lord has for you. Because He does. And if your eyes are wandering all over everywhere else and not on the thing that you have, you're missing it. You're missing it. <laughs> this is where it is. I had a friend uh, who his... his Family was coming apart at the seams. I knew I was a minister where he was, and and uh, I dealt with him and his family on on 
various occasions. And then he told me, he said, I think what God has really called me to do is he's called me to go to seminary, go into the inner cities, and convert Muslims. Well, that sounds great. You know, Muslims need to be converted wherever they are. Inner city, outer city, out in the country, out in the desert. Wherever they are, they need to be converted. But as I said to this young man, I said, but your first duty is to that family that you're neglecting and is falling apart. And you need to be dealing with them. And the reason why your eyes are cast all over everywhere is because you don't like the duty that He gave you in the first place. And that's where you're going to find your blessing. So what has God put before you? You think about that yourself. That is where you're going to find God. That's where you're going to find His Spirit. That's where you're going to find power. That's where you're going to find knowledge. That's where you're going to find blessing. Right there in that thing. And if God sees fit that you have learned all that you need to learn from that for your spiritual life, He will move you on to the next thing. He will move you to the next thing. He opens doors. He closes doors. Begin with humility, saying, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've only done what I should have done. God doesn't need my work. But in grace, He offers me to work with Him. And then next, acknowledge that God is, ex is essential to everything, to meaning, to purpose, to value in your life. He is essential to that. Without that, there is none. The writer of Ecclesiastes it could be Jean-Paul Sartre rather than Solomon, except that Jesus shows up in the book. And when Jesus shows up in the book, then there's meaning and there's purpose and there's value. But without that, there is none. And nihilism is right. It's right. It's absolutely right to the unbeliever. Trust in Him to bless your work and to teach it to you and to do the secret things you don't know about. And then be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth in Him. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, these are great and weighty things. They're all of our life. We're constantly in motion, continually doing things. And we pray, O oh Lord, that it not be in vain. Help us, Lord, not to work in vain throughout our lives. Cause us, Lord, to be profitable servants. If not to you, and that we understand because you are the Almighty, you are the infinite, there is nothing we can do for you. You have done all things for us. And yet, Lord, you have given us one another one another through which we may show our love and our gratitude to you. Bless our work, Lord, and remind us constantly to commit all of our work to you and teach us in it. We lift all these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen.